You will find the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah tonight. We'll continue our series in the book of Jeremiah. And we have arrived at chapter number 23. And we're going to be dealing tonight with uh, just the first six verses. And uh, if we get through those, uh, that will be wonderful. If not, uh, we will take this as the Lord leads. But in Jeremiah chapter number 23, I want to draw your attention, first of all, to verse number five. And we'll use that and we'll see our subject, what we're going to deal with tonight in these six verses. Jeremiah, as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of something that is to come. He speaks a word of prophecy. Uh, Much of the book of Jeremiah is uh, prophetic. It's pointing to something or someone who is to come. And he makes a most uh, glorious statement. Verse 5 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Jeremiah writes about a promise. He writes about the promise of a covenant that was made to David. That promise that was made to David, this covenantal promise, even though David's house, David's kingdom, we have been looking at how the the kingdoms and the kings had been failing. They had been doing what was right in their own eyes. Judgment has been announced to them. In verse number five, Jeremiah gives his people hope. He gives them a glimpse and reminds them of the promises that they have. And he says that the days will come. And notice These words are the words of the Lord. He says, I will raise unto David, notice this expression, a righteous branch. A new king would arise out of a house that had fallen and will fall to Babylon. In the moments when it looked like it was most hopeless, Jeremiah tells the people that there is coming a day when a righteous branch will come, a king who will be a perfect king. You'll notice that the word branch and the word king are capitalized. These are giving us an indication that this is a reference to God, it is a reference to Christ. It is a divine title. This new king would be a living branch out of what could only be referred to now as what might be a dead stump. In other words, the kings were failing. They were doing that which was right in their own eyes. And as the people grow more and more hopeless, Jeremiah says through God, he says, there is coming a day when a righteous branch, a perfect king, will arise. Just when it appeared there was no hope, a righteous branch will appear. Notice it says that he will execute judgment and justice. And if you've been paying attention in our study, you'll remember that all the way back in Jeremiah 22, verse number 3, what was expected of the kings, here's what it says in verse 3 of chapter 22. Thus saith the Lord, execute ye judgment and righteousness. In other words, Jesus, this coming righteous branch, would accomplish what all the kings could not do. He would execute judgment and righteousness, and there would be justice. What's ideal for a king is to execute judgment and justice. Jeremiah writes to a group of people in these first six verses we're looking at tonight, and he writes to the people who should have been carrying out 
this judgment and this righteousness and this justice. There were people that were supposed to care for the people. And the, the chapter begins with the word woe. It says, woe unto or woe be unto the pastors. The Lord here pronounces a verdict on the shepherds, the pastors, the prophets that had failed. But at the same time, he promises deliverance through a faithful king who would be the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a failure, but then there's a promise. There's a failed king, but then there's a faithful king who is coming. This faithful king would be 100% perfectly faithful, perfectly righteous, and will execute perfect judgment. But yet we see here, he says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Notice the word pastors is meant and the words my pasture is mentioned. Now we learned in Jeremiah 22:22 that the reference to the pastors is also a reference to the kings. Uh, the kings were the ones that had been given the responsibility to tend for and care for the people. We often look at this and we immediately try to jump into our, our modern day church age and we say, okay, the failure was the pastors of these local churches. That's not what he's talking about here. But the idea is, is a pastor is to be a shepherd. And the kings were to be a shepherd. Jesus Christ, here's the, here's the amazing thing about Christ. He is not only the perfect king, he's the perfect shepherd. Not only is he the perfect priest, he's the perfect prophet. Jesus is all the things that man can't be. Christ is everything that man cannot be. But yet, God does hold these pastors who were given the responsibility, he does hold them accountable. Verse 2, he says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. This phrase here, this word visit, it, it literally, the word means to inspect or to examine. Again, we a lot of times use modern terms and modern vernacular, and we often miss the intended meaning of the text. This word visit is, is not to go and, and, and see them as much as it is to inspect or examine them. Now, that, that may require seeing them, of course. But to examine closely, what, what the Bible's saying here is that these kings or these shepherds were not paying attention to the flock. They weren't tending to their needs. And yet God, in a bit of irony, says, you're not paying attention to my people, but I'm going to pay attention to you. I'm going to make you give an account for your failure. We'll come back to some of these verses again. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whether I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. There's a principle and a word you see throughout the Old Testament. It's the word remnant. A remnant can be a small size. It can be medium size. It can be a large size. A remnant just means that there is something left remaining. But the remnant in the Old Testament always refers to the spiritual people of God. In other words, when the Bible talks about a remnant, it's talking about God's people. We know Romans 11.5 tells us that there is an election according to grace. God always has a remnant of spiritual people. He always has a remnant of people 
who are his. But I want us to think about tonight not only this righteous branch, but I want us to think about what would the world be like, and let's try to apply this today, what would a world be like today in our churches, number one, if there were not pastors, and number two, what if there were not leaders? What if this world was just free-for-all? What if we just said, everybody do what's right in your own eyes and all things will work out? The, pro- the reality is, is God gives leaders for a reason. He gives leadership for a purpose. Now, we get a little bit more insight into Jeremiah 23 by going all the way to Jeremiah 50. So turn over there quickly, if you would. And remember, I told you that one of the peculiar things about the book of Jeremiah is it's not chronological. So when you're reading it from verse 20, chapter 23 to 24, 25, as an example, it doesn't always mean they're following right in line. We make the mistake often of thinking that this event happened and this event happened. Jeremiah is not chronological in many ways. Some things are, but some things are not. In Jeremiah 50, there is a reference made to uh, the time when Jeremiah is speaking of, of when God's people or Israel had fallen into the hands of Babylon, okay? God had used Babylon against Judah as an instrument of justice. In other words, God's people were subjected to the, the uh, attacks of Babylon as a way of carrying out God's uh, penalty or punishment upon them. But Jeremiah 50 now is about Babylon now being judged for their own crimes, But in this text, look what it says in verse 6 of of Jeremiah 50. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. All that found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, we offend not because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. We see in Jeremiah chapter number 50 that God's people are referred to as being lost sheep or people having no shepherd. Now, understand this about God. I I don't claim any originality to this statement, but God knows the future while holding the present. Okay, he knows the future, he's ordained the future, but he also holds the present. And yet, his people are called lost sheep. Lost just simply means needing direction. In the uh, farming world or in the world of raising animals, sheep are often in great danger when they're left to their own. If you leave them to themselves and you just let them decide and do all that they need, they will literally walk themselves into a dangerous thing. They, they do not, uh, they're not the brightest of animals. Sheep were in danger. God's people were in danger. When left to themselves, they were in danger. But here is the the indictment against the shepherds and the pastors is that instead of leading these sheep who needed a shepherd, you led them astray. In other words, you led them to a place. They needed protection. They needed direction. But instead, they were lost sheep. 
Sheep that are lost or vulnerable. Sheep that are left to themselves will go astray, but the indictment is that the shepherds who should have been leading them caused them to go astray and have turned them away. These shepherds or pastors or rulers or leaders who should have been directing them were literally the ones that were causing them to go in the wrong direction. There's a repeated theme throughout the book of Jeremiah where God pronounces judgment upon pastors, priests, and prophets. People that should have pointed people in the right direction, they are accused or indicted on pointing them in the wrong direction. That's what makes Jeremiah 23 verses 1 and 2 what we read. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You have scattered them, he says. You've driven them away. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings. God holds leaders accountable. Now, how did all this happen? How did God's people get into a place where they were led astray? Well, Jeremiah 50 verse 6 tells us they have forgotten their resting place. In other words, they had forgotten where their hope and who their hope was in. I mentioned to you, and we read, the Lord is my shepherd, because it is not impossible for you and I in our day and age to forget who our resting place is. People get into great crisis in their life. They deal with tremendous situations. And what we often do is we forget where our true resting place is. Our true resting place is not in any other man or any other person. It is in the shepherd. It is in Christ Jesus as the perfect shepherd. That's where our hope is. But yet we understand that God holds leaders accountable for what they do with the sheep. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I have all things and abound. Not because I have a good store of money in the bank, Not because I have skill and wit with which to win my bread, but because the Lord is my shepherd. Spurgeon says, that's why I abound. I abound because when I read Psalm 23, I say it personally. The Lord is my shepherd. He's other shepherd, but he's my shepherd. He is my guide. He is my direction. But we see there back in our text in Jeremiah 23, verse 1, that there is a charge against the pastors. God's people who are referred to as God's sheep. God takes ownership of these sheep. He says, these are my people. They are his sheep. How ashamed God must be when his sheep go astray and forget their resting place. Now again, you could be led astray by earthly pastors. You could be led astray by earthly leaders. But to forget your resting place, to forget him on your own, that is on you. However, there's a great accountability that is given to the the pastors or those who should be shepherding his sheep. So verse 1 shows us there's a charge against the pastors. Verses 2 and 3, which you've already read, show us there are consequences to the pastors. Notice again, verse 2 says that they were scattered. You pastors scattered my flock. 
and driven them away and have not visited them. In other words, you didn't, you didn't examine them. You didn't inspect them. You didn't tend to them. You didn't, you didn't care for them. So as a result of that, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings. Again, as I mentioned to you before, you didn't look after them, but I'm going to look after you. But then we see in verse 3, and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whether I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Here God, through the prophet Jeremiah, promises the restoration of his people and his church. But he reminds them, those pastors, those kings, those rulers, understand something. There is a prophecy here that's also a prophetic of promise and warning. The pastors are told, I will visit you and I will hold you accountable. The sheep are told, there is a promise for you that I will one day set up a perfect king. We know this fact. We know that all the descendants of Abraham, all of what is now known as the nation of Israel is not cut off. We understand that there is a remnant But God holds these pastors accountable. These shepherds who had led God's sheep astray, he speaks of here. He held them responsible for how they had led them. It is true, each one of us is accountable for our own actions. Don't miss this. In other words, you cannot excuse yourself by saying, well, the shepherds led me astray. You're still held accountable and I'm held accountable for my own actions. But I do know this. It is true that God holds his people accountable for the leadership that they have been providing. God holds everyone accountable. God will accomplish his purposes. But there's a charge here. There are consequences that are given. But then verse 4, we see the comfort that is given to the people. God will give his sheep pastors. Look what he says the difference is. And I will set up shepherds. I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Now this word shepherds, to be fair, in the original language is the same word as pastors in verse 1. If you study the history of 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 Judah's earthly kings, you find out that with the passing of the kings, God would raise up sufficient leaders to tend for his people. Now, who was the ultimate fulfillment of the perfect shepherd? John chapter number 10, verses 1 through 18, shows us that the ultimate fulfillment of these shepherds, these perfect shepherds, would be the coming of Christ as the good shepherd, is what he refers to himself in John chapter number 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The perfect shepherd. The fulfillment of even the prophecy of Jeremiah when Jeremiah said, I will raise up these shepherds. Make no mistake about it, there were shepherds before Christ ultimately came But he rose up shepherds to care for the people. Here, God promises that God will send his sheep the perfect shepherd or the perfect pastor. 
What is God saying here? Through Jeremiah, he is saying, I will be faithful to that original covenant that I made with David. I will not go back on my covenant that I said that I will raise up a king, even though the kings who have sat on the throne of David are failures for the most part. King's failures did not negate God's promises. Aren't you glad about that? Because if the king's failures negated God's promises, none of us tonight would have any comfort or hope at all. God would keep his covenant. God would keep his promises. He confirms that he would remain faithful to them. He would provide true shepherds who will perform their office as they should. It wouldn't be enough just to put the sheep back in the right field or the right pasture. They have to be fed. Someone told me recently about sheep, you actually have to show them where to go or they'll starve to death. A shepherd actually has to lead them or they will literally die where they are. They need a shepherd. God says, I will send you a shepherd. You see, just as a sheep need a shepherd to rule and guide it, how much more do we need a shepherd to rule and guide us. Where would we be if we did not have leaders? Where would we be if we didn't have shepherds and pastors and leaders? Again, notice the emphasis is on a righteous branch. Righteous meaning perfect. Righteous literally being that which is of divinity, that which is of God. Verse 4 says, They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. That verse is what makes Psalm 23 so beautiful because it says literally the very things these shepherds will do. There won't be fear, you will not be dismayed, and you will not lack for anything. There's a comfort that the people are given. In the time we have tonight, I want to spend the primary amount of time on verses 5 and 6 because this is really the key to this text. We ought to make much about Christ. We ought to talk about Christ endlessly. We ought to make mention of Him every time we gather as a church. We ought to glorify Christ every time we speak about the Word of God. We ought to make Jesus Christ are all in all. He is the all in all. He's the king of kings. He is this perfect shepherd. The Bible refers to him as a righteous branch. Now notice the phrase here, a righteous branch, comma, and a king. A righteous branch. This phrase or this branch, it is a, it is, again, it is a promise that he will be faithful to the covenant that he had made with David. David himself was not a perfect king, but David is referred to as being faithful. David is referred to as a man after God's own, God's own heart. David did something. David did embrace God with true faith. He believed the promises of God. That's what we can say about David. David believed the promises of God. He says with his servant David, I will raise unto David or the throne of David, I will raise a righteous branch. 
Now let's make one thing very clear about this righteous branch being raised up. This wasn't a promise because the people were worthy of a deliverer. This this wasn't a promise that the people had done enough to deserve it or to earn this perfect king, this perfect shepherd. Yet God is honoring the covenant that he made with David. And when God makes a covenant, that covenant remains forever. David kept the covenant. David was faithful in keeping the covenant. And God, through Christ, would be the perfect keeper of the covenant. David, throughout the scripture, is referred to as a type of Christ. He's not Christ, he's not God, but he's a type. He pictured what Christ would be. And yet when Christ comes, there's no doubt that Jeremiah was referring to Christ when he makes mention of these things here. Very specifically, this promise that God would send a shepherd. But you notice about this righteous branch, he says, a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. We began the message with that particular statement, so I won't go back to that again, but we understand that's the ideal king. That is the perfect shepherd. But then in verse 6, In his days, look at this statement, Judah shall be saved. And Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. Now notice this phrase, all in caps. The Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah says that God will send a Savior. God will send the salvation of his sheep. Jeremiah is not just talking about protection or a promise to David's direct seed. However perfect or excellent we may have compared them to or looked at them and said maybe they seem to be more qualified, which they weren't. This mediator who had been promised would be the savior of all men, not just Israel. But here it is said, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. The Lord, our righteousness. God says Christ will be made. Notice the phrase, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. It tells us who this king would be. Though this king would be a human descendant of David... Jesus Christ took on a robe of human flesh without ever ceasing to be God, but Jesus Christ is still a human descendant of David. Though he is a human descendant of David, this king would also be the Lord God. The Lord God is a reference to what is referred to as the incarnate Jehovah, or what Isaiah 9-6 says about him. A very familiar passage says this, Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He would be a perfect king. He would be God in the flesh. Righteousness, 
in this context also refers to God's judgment on Babylon. This is a promise that eventually Babylon would be judged. Judah would ultimately be saved from exile. We'll see that in Jeremiah 51. But ultimately, what this phrase, the Lord our righteousness, is pointing us to is pointing to Christ as our righteousness in the presence of God. In other words, for us to stand in the presence of God requires His righteousness, which must be our righteousness, which means in order for me to stand in the presence of God, I must have His righteousness. Jeremiah says his name shall be called the Lord our righteousness and shows we have a righteousness in common with him. Christ possesses a righteousness that has ultimately been imputed to us. Here we're not seeing Christ coming primarily to inflict divine justice, but rather what we see him coming is to bring righteousness. Righteousness is what affects salvation. Righteousness is what affects salvation. If we want to have God as our righteousness, then we must seek Christ. Our righteousness cannot be found anywhere else except in Christ. In order for me to stand in the presence of God, I must have Christ's righteousness. There's a passage, or a verse rather, over in 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 30. The Bible says this. Well, let's, I'm going to go back and, and read this in, in verse uh, 27 of 1 Corinthians 1. It says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Okay, no flesh shall glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We are counted the righteousness of God in him. This is a profound statement, but Christ is not only righteous for himself, he is our righteousness. This righteous branch would be the effect or that which affects salvation. That which is the very requirement of salvation. Salvation requires the righteousness of Christ. Without his righteousness, there is no salvation. This reference to a righteous branch, a king who would execute judgment and justice and rule well, rule properly, but he's also that which would affect perfect salvation. Christ is the perfect Savior. We often think about Christ as our shepherd when we're going through difficult times. We think about as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 23, when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, do you see how important it is that in order to make Psalm 23 comforting to you, you must have Christ as your righteousness. 
He cannot just be some nebulous thought or nebulous idea that says, yeah, I know there's a God. No, He has to be your righteousness. In order for you to stand in the presence of God, you must have His righteousness. This righteous branch that would come out of an earthly throne or an earthly kingdom, the throne of David. Christ is not just righteous for himself, but he's right, our righteousness. David's obedience brought God's blessing upon him and the people. It doesn't mean he was perfect, but David was an obedient king. But the perfect obedience was not found in David. The perfect obedience was found in whom? Was found in Christ. Perfectly obeyed. Never sinned. Never had a sinful thought. The perfect obedience led Jesus Christ to be lifted up upon a place or at a place called Calvary on an old rugged cross. He did that out of perfect obedience. By his obedience brought acceptance, acceptance of God. The only way a sinner is accepted before God is through the righteousness of Christ in which the cross affected. All that are in Christ receive the blessings that are found in Christ. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Now we understand that in the, the context and of the Jewish world and of the nation of Israel, we realize that this was not just a saving deliverance. He was also talking about the salvation from the exile and the, the, the return from Babylon and the promises that one day all these kings that have, have made it such a mess, one day this Messiah is coming. Now, folks, this is what makes so sad today that even when Messiah came, who was clearly without any doubt, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what Jeremiah was speaking of, of who Isaiah was speaking about, that when he came, they said, we don't believe he's the Messiah. And as a result, we know that their hearts were hardened, their eyes were blinded, and they don't see him for who he is. We see Christ as the righteous branch. We see him as our righteousness. We see him as a faithful shepherd. To enjoy the salvation of God, you must have Christ both as king and your only source of righteousness. He is our authority. A shepherd is not just one who allows us and shows us where to get food and water. Okay? A shepherd was a king. A shepherd is authority. Jesus Christ is not just something we, someone we take suggestions from. He is our redeemer. He is our king. He is our guide. If the shepherd says move here, we move there. If the shepherd says go here, we go there. He is to be the Lord of our lives. I worry greatly about a person who says, I want Jesus as my Savior, but I don't want Him to be the Lord of my life. He ought to be the Lord of your life. Now, does that make Him affecting your salvation? No, it doesn't. But you ought to make Him and say, He is my shepherd, and He's the Lord of my life. 
in November of 1572, close to the day of his death, Scottish reformer by the name of John Knox, some of you know the name Knox, said goodbye to his close friends with these words, live in Christ, live in Christ, and then flesh need not fear death. Lord, grant true pastors to thy church that purity of doctrine may be maintained. Even John Knox's prayer as he stepped out into eternity was that his friends would live in Christ and in Christ there is no fear of death and his prayer and his final words, and if you know anything about John Knox and you understand the, 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 the influence he had on the Reformation, in the days of his death, his last prayer request was, Lord, grant true pastors to your church. Grant shepherds who will tend to the flock. Grant leaders. And he didn't just mean pastors of individual churches per se. He meant leaders and shepherds and rulers who would do it according to God in order that the purity of doctrine might be maintained. But how important is that in the church today? All the way back in 1572, John Knox was saying, grant true pastors to churches. That doctrine would be maintained. Guess what has slipped in most churches? Doctrine. Doctrine is the very heart of what a church believes, the very heart of what leads a church to do what it does. Without doctrine, a church is like lost sheep. Without doctrine, we are simply going about through the motions. We're not being guided by anything. What a shepherd is to do is to make sure that the doctrine of the Word of God is what the sheep are being fed with and that that is our guide, what the Word of God says. We're reminded that God expects much from people who have been given much. God's people are His sheep. His sheep to, should take heed to the pastors, to the leaders. We're all sheep. Pastors, our world, our churches, our families, we would be a mess if there was not godly appointed leaders in those realms of our life. The accusation against these shepherds and these pastors was the very people who should have been directing them were leading them astray. But Jesus was the fulfillment. I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. Listen, here's a promise I can make you. I can tell you tonight that Jesus Christ is the perfect shepherd. I can tell you tonight He is the righteous branch. I can tell you He is the Lord our righteousness. I can promise you He will always be faithful to the covenant that He made even if every other earthly king, earthly ruler, and Heaven forbid every earthly pastor fails you. There is a perfect shepherd. And that perfect shepherd is Christ. You will never meet a perfect earthly pastor. No matter what church you attend, no matter what church you find, you will not find a perfect one. And at the end of your life, as John Knox said, he won't be saying, live in your pastor, live in your pastor. He will be saying, live in Christ. 
Christ is your shepherd. Earthly shepherds will fail you, but the perfect shepherd never will. Better than earthly pastors, God promised the coming of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah, he was looking forward. He's, Jesus has already come. He's already come to the earth. He's already bled and died. He's already ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's already there. Now we look for his return. But until then, may God help us to properly, not only as pastors, lead the sheep, but as sheep to also understand our perfect shepherd is Jesus Christ. I hope tonight we'll get just a little bit of a glimpse of what Jeremiah is writing about next week. We'll pick up in verse number seven. This, this narrative continues and continues to talk about the deliverance that this Messiah would bring. But tonight I hope this will encourage us and help us as we think about the Lord, our shepherd.